Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, folks, and welcome to AOA. Thank you for taking the time to tune in to us today. I'm Mike Pearson, sitting in for Mike Adams. We've got a lot to come on today's show. We are going to be talking about the challenges facing California's Proposition 12 with Michael Formica here in just a minute. He's the general counsel with the National Pork Producers. And we are going to talk weather with Mr. Greg Solier at the end of the show. In addition, that fertilizer market has continued to stay volatile. Josh Linville, the director of fertilizer with Stonex, will join me in the third segment to talk about how that market continues to change. But first, it's time to check in on the grain markets with our friend Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing. Dwayne, I understand you folks in South Dakota might be looking at some wind event tomorrow. Yeah, that's the one thing we tend to have a lot of is wind, and it's not all coming from us brokers. It actually is just a, a windy area up here, uh, some wind tomorrow night, uh, maybe a little bit of snow, so we'll have to watch the weather a little bit. But it's been really nice, though, Mike. i got to be honest with you, above normal temps. Uh, there's no white here, actually, in the, in the northern part. Now, the southern part of the state got a lot of white here this last weekend, about 10 inches down there in the Sioux Falls area. That's true. Of course, you're in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, most growers able to get harvest wrapped up in your part of the country? Yeah, yeah, they really did. You know, we went, well, a lot of guys that call it the one of the wettest droughts they've ever had. Uh, we, were, we were horribly dry during July and August and concerned about the crop. And then it started to rain the middle part of August and got pretty wet during harvest. So it's kind of frustrating. Uh, some areas were pulling combines out in that. And, but that helped the beans at the end yield better. And uh, yeah, we got through it. And now it's been a nice November in December. We got actually a lot of fall field work done as well, other than the areas that are a little too wet. But um, so no, I'd say the table's kind of set for next year. Now we're going in the winter, ready for some uh, uh, some quiet time, I guess. <laughs> yes, I think that's true. I think a lot of folks are ready for a little quiet time. <laughs> you mentioned fall field work getting done. We're starting to have that conversation, Dwayne, about the acreage mix for next planting season. What have you heard mm-hmm. from from your friends and neighbors up in northeastern South Dakota? Going to keep most rotations in place? Uh, well, no, not really. I, you know, you're going to hear the rotational stay the same in the I states and. And that's just the way it is. But, no, we are the swing areas, right? We're those swing acres that can go either way. We don't put on much for as far as fall fertilizer. So I, our fields aren't decided. A lot of times I joke that our fields aren't decided up here until after the March 31st planting intentions report because usually the price changes and we, we move around and plant something different. So obviously very high input cost. Uh, a, a decent amount of farmers did lock that in on the fertilizer side of things I'm hinting towards. So... You do have some fertilizer locked in, so it's not like the acres are going to just get shattered lower, but uh, we could swing either way, and i got to be honest with you, it'll be a springtime decision and a weather decision a lot. You know, you get this far north, it's always a narrow window for us to get stuff planted until it's too late, and, uh, you know, some areas, like I mentioned, were, were pretty wet, and if they get too much rain, we're looking at prevent plant as being an issue again, which we normally have. But last year was record low in the Dakotas, and uh, I'm afraid it could be back if we had a wet spring next year. And that, that puts a whole new twist on this, because there's not too many crops that are willing to give up acres next year, is there, Mike? No, there's really not, Dwayne. That's a great point. The demand is there for nearly everything that's produced. And, of course, you know, getting a crop in the ground is half the battle, but getting that crop sold is how we make a living in agriculture, Dwayne. This corn market, as we round out 2021, as we get to the end of the year, do, do you have some belief that this market's going to just trade sideways? It, it sure has been in a holiday trade here the last couple of weeks, really since about the first week before Thanksgiving. It seems like we went into holiday mode and, and it stayed that way sideways. But the nice thing, Mike, is we're, we're trending sideways just under $6. Uh, so I'm going to call it a bit of a victory for the bulls. Um, you know, it won't take much a light holiday trade on, say, the 23rd of December here with uh, January options going off. You know, maybe we get a spike above if we get a little drought scare in, in southern Brazil and Argentina, which, you know, that seems like that's a typical weather market. We're back and forth every day on that. But, yeah, it will probably continue sideways until 
some new news item pushes us out. But the funds seem to be really supporting their long positions. They're buying on dips. So I, I guess I think when we do finally break that sideways pattern, I think it is going to be to the, to the upside and get up over six and maybe even six and a quarter if uh, the demand stays strong. Well, I, I think you raised a great point there. The managed money, Dwayne, I was looking at this. We've got managed money long, what, a little over 300,000 contracts. And I was nervous that perhaps they might be looking to take their ball and go home as we get to the end of the quarter, the end of the year here in December. But you think because they've been defending that position, they could be, be growing that long position in the corn. Yeah, you're, I, I hope so. I, I know I, I felt better the last commitment of Traders Report to see they were back in buying and supporting their long positions. But yeah, the week prior to that, I think they liquidated like 30,000 contracts. And it did make me nervous because obviously if you're long 300,000 contracts and they just the funds decide they just want out, it doesn't matter how good demand is, how bullish a chart looks, the market's just going to go down. That's too many people looking to sell and not enough buyers then. Markets actually can be that simple, believe it or not. So, no, it's good to see them here defending their position. And and remember now with the new rules, you know, we look to say, well, they're a record long at 425,000 contracts. Those records are are changed now, are going to change now because they can go uh, like twice as long as they would before. So a whole new ballgame here next year. That's a great point. Let's talk soybeans. That domestic demand has been strong. We get an update from NOPA on their crush numbers tomorrow. Dwayne, what do you expect to see? Has domestic crush stayed elevated throughout this past month? I, uh, yeah, I absolutely think so. We should be near those record numbers again, that 186 or so million bushels. Uh, I was surprised it took us a little bit once we got into harvest and I get back up to record levels. The, the, the crush, when you just look at the economics behind it, it, it should tell them to crush as much as they possibly can. And I think that's what they're going to do. And of course, you get into the year later in 2022, you got a few more plants coming online. So that crush should stay near record levels, hopefully. The, the key will be Argentina weather, actually. They're the number one meal exporter in the world, and they're, they have been hinting on the dry side a little bit here. And remember, they're further behind in crop development than Brazil is. Their crop is just planted, so they got a lot of weather in front of them. If they tend to get dry in a La Nina season like they normally do, then this meal market could take off here and keep crush demand solid. Great point. There's so much happening in Argentina. We could spend 10 minutes just talking about the challenges that country's facing politically and weather-wise, but we don't have 10 minutes, and I want to talk cattle. (laughs) Dwayne, the cattle market, I mean, we have continually been looking for some relief here to cattle feeders, to cow-calf producers. As you look out, 2022, we've got inflation in place. Are we going to start seeing returns at the farm gate grow for America's cattle producers? I, I think so. You know, the same line of thinking that the funds got long corn and they seem to be, be defending their position. I think you're seeing the same thing in the live cattle uh, market right now. Funds have been buying quite a few contracts. We saw a really nice reversal yesterday in the market, and I think what happened is it got cheap enough. The funds stepped back in and started buying. Now, you also went through about a three-week time frame there where packers actually didn't have enough cattle of their own or contractor cattle coming in. They had to pay up for the show list, and the cash market really took off, got about to that 142 area. Uh, and then when we dip back to 140 last week, I think we can rally back up there again here, Mike. All right, something to watch for. A lot of folks with cattle in the cold are going to be hoping they can see those returns grow. Dwayne Bossy from Bolt Marketing, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Mike. And folks, when we return, we will talk Proposition 12 lawsuits with Michael Formica from the NPPC. So stay tuned here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, each month we get the uh, latest numbers in the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Here once again, Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmire to break it down. Michael, thanks for joining us. Looks like the numbers are lower again this month. Yes, they are. The, the index dropped from 121 in October to 116 in November, and that's the lowest Ag Economy Barometer index 
since June of 2020. And so we've dropped quite a ways from the highs we saw this spring. In April, we were at close to 180 in terms of this index. And so and so some large drops again this month, both the index of future expectations and the index of current conditions dropped. So both of those sub-indices dropped. The index of future expectations is still higher than the index of current conditions, meaning that producers realize that 2021 is a pretty good year. There's a lot of concerns uh, related to where we're going in 2022. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. I'd walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson sitting in for Mike Adams today, but we are still talking everything agriculture. Coming up next, it's time to take a look at California. That Proposition 12 that they passed in 2018 continues to be a political football. There are battles happening over that very proposition. And with those rules scheduled to go into place January 1st, 2022, I figured it was time for an update. So to provide that update, we are talking to Michael Formica. He is the Assistant Vice President and General Counsel at the National Pork Producers. Mr. Formica, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk for our listeners who are outside the hog industry. Maybe we're not plugged in to Proposition 12. Give us the 30-second view. Of what, what is this lawsuit or what is this law about? Sure. So Prop. Prop 12 is the latest version of these animal welfare, animal husbandry um, ballot initiatives that uh, vegan activists led by the Humane Society of the United States have been pushing for in, in states across the country. Always target states where you don't have a lot of pork production in, um, so people don't know. And you, you know, usually imposing some onerous, highly prescriptive standard on, on, on the care um, and, you know, and the husbandry of sows. With Prop 12, changed it a little bit and not only required farms in California to be compliant with these prescriptive standards, but also prohibited the sale of any pork in California that didn't comply with the same, um, the same requirement. And so in that regard, California reached halfway across the country and is trying to regulate uh, farms and farmers who have no connection to the state of California other than the fact that their product might enter streams of commerce and wind up on, you know, on a grocery store shelf there. Yeah, and this has, of course, you've gotten the entire industry to sort of focus up and uh, t- take a look at California. There has been three years of legal wrangling over this Proposition 12. Michael, bring us up to speed where we sit right now. I know NPPC and the American Farm Bureau brought a constitutional challenge to this. 
Can you provide some updates on on what exactly you were saying to the courts about Prop 12? Sure, um, and yeah, there's there's been a lot of there's been a lot of litigation over this and over other um, prior versions of these kinds of laws. Um, you know, NPPC, along with the Farm, American Farm Bureau, we filed our challenge in twenty nine in late twenty nineteen. Um, did it in in courts in California because that's where we were required to do it, knowing we would lose at the district court because the law in California and the way they look at these things is so crazy. Um, but you've got to you got to start there to get to the Supreme Court. And we did it with an eye on the Supreme Court. Um, we're arguing uh, that this law is a violation of the U.S. Constitution, uh, specifically the Commerce Clause and the what's known as the Dormant Commerce Clause, this um, dormant body of law that is just inherent in the Constitution that says one state can't regulate into another state. That each of the states are, uh, you know, they're autonomous. They can operate as they want within their within the, their the boundaries of their state, but they can't discriminate against commerce coming from another state, and they can't reach out and tell people, citizens of another state, what to do. Um, you know, if you're in South Dakota, you know, I, I believe you're in South Dakota. If you're in South Dakota, you can't go and pass municipal regulations telling the people in Minneapolis. Minnesota, you know, what the speed limit's going to be on the street or where they can park their cars or what hours businesses can be open. And that's really what California is doing here. I'll uh, give you one crazy example that they that they have asserted is we've gone through these, uh, these uh, litigation trials. Um, they claim that they have the right to dictate what the minimum wage is in another state using the same theory that they passed Prop 12 with, that they could imposing a national minimum wage and that's you know that there, there's are lines in the sand um these are items that are central to the founding of this country and our constitutional republic and the relations between individual states and states in the federal government and california is just trying to walk all over them uh you know this is uh this is a uh, it, it, california is an imperial uh dictatorial state and we're fighting it. You are. And we're going to get this up to the Supreme Court. Okay. Well, I know you, you did file in California. You were you were dealt a loss, as you expected. So what's the timeline look like for being able to address this in front of the Supreme Court? So we uh, we, we lost in the district court. We went to the Court of Appeals. We lost there. Um, expected, you expected to lose there. So we, we had a very, very good panel that over, oversaw the case. We lucked out in that regard. And while losing, they gave us a, a, a lengthy opinion uh, that really explained why, if we had filed this case anywhere else in the country, we would have won. But we were in California, and we were in the Ninth Circuit, and the law in the Ninth Circuit is so at odds with how the law is everywhere else that they they had to find against us. But only the Supreme Court could overturn that. Okay. And going to the Supreme Court. We have we have filed our briefs. Um, California responded last week. We will have another uh, round of papers filed next week, and then um, with any luck, the Supreme Court will make a decision on whether they're going to hear the case on January seventh. So we're getting we're, we're we're getting down to the end here, and uh, we'll know you know we'll know within a couple of weeks whether uh, you know, whether we have a shot. And regardless of when the Supreme Court hears your challenge, these laws are supposed to go into effect January 1st. I know a coalition of grocers and restaurants have now sued in California looking for a 28-month delay. Does that seem like it's plausible given the fact that California hasn't yet published the rules for this new proposition? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting um, lawsuit that they brought. And so this is being brought by, by California citizens. Right. They're they've not raided Hobbs. They're in the business of selling food to people, and and the state has completely dropped the ball. You know, Prop 12 goes into effect for pork January 1, but they were supposed to have all the implementing regulations out in September of 2019. Uh, just last week, 
uh, the day before California filed its brief to the Supreme Court, in our case, they released the latest version of those proposed regulations. And so there is another comment period that is still going on. They will not have regulations done and complete by January 1. Um, they'll be lucky to have these done and complete by the middle of next year. And so if you're a grocery store, what do you do? You're, you know, you're, 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 you're forced to deal with the reality of the world. Your customers want pork. They want bacon. They want ribs. They want chops. Um, they want, it's Christmas time. They want ham. Eat more ham. It's delicious. <laughs> they want the, they want these products and, and now you risk going to jail if you sell them to them. That's ludicrous. And so they have gone to the court and said, you know, prop 12, has, and they're not challenging the underlying premise of Prop 12. It's saying, look, Prop 12 said the state would have a system in place in a certain amount of time, which would give the industry, the pork producers, some guidance as to how to even begin to comply with it. So we wouldn't have these disruptions in, 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 you know, in the flow of commerce in the, in the marketplace. And, you know, the, the state dropped the ball. And so that's what they're looking at. They're, you know, I, I heard this morning of, of a major, a major, major retailer. Was, you know, they just heard that uh, you know one of their suppliers isn't going to be able to supply them with compliant pork. I heard from grocery store chain last week, a major, major national grocery store chain, that they were told by a, a different supplier uh, that you know don't expect to have any pork after January one. We can't supply you, Thanks. and. You know, that's a that is a that that's a problem. Uh, HSUS, of course, is running around saying, "Oh, there's no problem. There's no problem at all." You know, here are you know, here are a handful of farmers who can give you you know still supply pork, and it's right. There are some, you know, there are some producers out there, um, you know, that that have high welfare farms. They've got you know these these are you know they got free range pigs, but that. Those are uh, those are it's a minuscule um, number. Yeah, they, uh, they 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 don't even register in the grand scheme of of how large this marketplace is. That's a great point. And they come at a cost, at a significant cost. Yeah. They certainly do, and we are going to continue to watch this. We will see what happens when the calendar flips to 2022. Mr. Formica, we'll get you back on to digest all of the legal in yeah, craziness that's going on in California. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. And, folks, when we return, we'll be back with AOA Talking Fertilizer. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. U.S. soybean inspections were the lowest since the end of September last week. Bean inspections totaled 1.72 million tons, which was 24 percent below the 10-week average and well under the low end of the trade range. Corn inspections were larger than last week and came in right at the 10-week average. Wheat inspections were nearly the same as last week, but 19 percent below the 10-week average. Top destinations for the week were China for corn and soybeans and Japan for wheat. 
On the Board of Trade this morning, March corn trading a penny higher at 586. The May contract up a penny at 588 and a fraction of a cent. For soybeans, the March contract up 10 at 1260 and three quarters. The November contract up eight at 1238 and a half cent. For wheat, Chicago wheat March down six and three quarters at 782 and a fraction. Kansas City wheat March down four and three quarters at 807 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat March down three and a fraction at 1015. The May contract down four and a fraction at 1004. Traders did not expect cash cattle to trade on Monday. That set the stage for intraday technical trading as there was nothing to generate excitement. Hopes for continued higher cash through the end of the year has been dashed with cash price weakness last week. Now there is concern cash may trade a little lower this week as packers seem to have set themselves up well through the end of the year with quite a few deferred cattle already on the books. Box beef provided no solid direction with choice down $1.32 and select up $1.40. For livestock on the Board of Trade, the February contract up a dime at 138.95. April up a dime at 142.47. Feeder cattle March up 42 at 166.90. April up 30 at 169.65. In lean hogs, the February contract down 42 at 80.32. April down 52 at 85.30. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rawl. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson here sitting in today for Mike Adams. You know, we just talked about Proposition 2, and that is a topic that is going to be with us for quite some time. If you missed our last segment, you can find it on the podcast, which is available every single day on the American Ag Network website. So do be sure to check that out if you have missed an episode. Next, it's time to talk about another topic that has been on the minds of probably every grower since about August and that's the fertilizer market. Joining us today is our good friend Josh Linville, the director of fertilizer with Stone X. Josh, you have to be a busy man this winter, I'm guessing. I'll tell you what, grass or uh, moss is definitely not growing beneath my feet. It's been uh, hopping and it looks like it's going to stay that way all the way through to next spring. Well, it is. And Josh, the fertilizer market is also hopping. It's been a while since we've had you on the show to talk to us. What has end pricing done here over the last two or three weeks? Are we finally starting to plateau? I think from a, it depends on the product, right? But from an anhydrous standpoint, yeah, I think we're starting to plateau, at least for the short term. Uh, we have started to see winter fill prices. We started seeing spring pre, pre, uh, prepay prices come out. And while it's fortunate that we've actually got those values in front of us now to consider, the unfortunate part is they are not much different than these highs that we've set in the fall season. Uh, we have had a tremendous fall anhydrous application run. I mean, there is no way we could have forecasted something to be this good. But unfortunately, the flip side of that is we have ran this system out of inventory. I mean, we've dropped these inventory levels down to next to nothing, and it's still going. So it looks like we're probably going to apply stuff through the remainder of December. And a lot of the mindset is, well, we got it on the fall. We don't need anything for the spring. But there's still a lot of demand in the spring. And when you look at the difference between the end of December and, the let's say, first part midway through March, it only gives a system 60, 75 days to get refilled. They can't do it. The logistics are not there. So we're going to go into the spring. Uh, inventory is going to be low, and the producers are saying, listen, we can't get enough uh, supply to meet the demand. Price needs to be up to push that to urea, to push that to UAM. 
All right, so that could definitely be a price spike or some potential for upward movement in the future. But Josh, you mentioned we have pulled on an awful lot of gas. I was working with a co-op over in eastern Iowa this past week. They put on record amounts of fall anhydrous. Have you heard that from a lot of the other folks you're working with? Yes, I have. Uh, significantly higher than last fall. And last fall was a fantastic run. We Again, it was one of those seasons we didn't think we could get better until this season. So, yeah, we've done a tremendous amount. But the problem is there's still a lot of acres out there that are still undecided. They didn't know which way to go, so they're waiting. Uh, there's still an awful lot of the Corn Belt that can't put product on in the fall that has to wait till the springtime. So it, it, that's the thing. A lot of the acres that have already been decided on, they've gotten done. But now it's time to figure out, okay, how many acres are we truly going to do? What are we actually going to get done? And there's still a significant amount coming this spring. Yeah, there is. And you mentioned that and as you look out at the urea market at, at Liquid UAN, Josh, what else are you seeing develop here in fertilizer? Yeah, everything for me, I always look at urea as kind of the uh, canary in the coal mine. Where it goes, the other two tend to follow. And uh, that always starts internationally because we are part of a global market. Globally, things are still very, very tight. We still have China that is banning exports of nitrogen. They are not allowing stuff to leave their country, and they export millions of tons per year. So that's a major loss to the world. Uh, European natural gas prices are remaining high, if not pushing higher. They continue to be taken out. Their production rates are far lower than what they normally are because of the cost, which, of course, drives up demand. And things were tight to start with. So my fear is that we're going to start the very the new year, the new calendar year, very low on inventory levels, very high on demand as all these global spots start popping up, you know, North America and Europe and Asia and India and Brazil. Low supply, high demand typically means prices are fairly well supported. And the thing that worries me, when we look at the U.S. value today, we are somewhere $130, $140 a ton below international replacement pricing. So either international has got to fall or NOLA has to jump or uh, North America has to jump. And right now, if I've got to you know, flip a coin, I'm leaning towards international prices are holding for a while. Yeah, it's easier for prices to jump up than it is for prices to come down when there's a global market sitting with a ton of uncertainty. Josh, you mentioned the fact that we are global. Last year, we saw that challenge. The late planting of Brazil's safrina crop put them buying inputs at the exact same time of the, as the American farmer. This year, even if we're coming in short bought to this spring season, we likely will be competing less with Brazil out in the open market, do you think, come springtime? It's a possibility. I, I've heard conflicting reports coming out of Brazil. I've heard some people say they are more than adequately supplied. They've got more than enough stuff sitting in the in there. Yet then again, I'll hear other reports that sit there and say, listen, there, uh, there are people backing out of their contracts that they've already had in place. They don't have the product to sell to them. So honestly, I'm still trying to kind of make heads or tails of it because I'm getting conflicting reports. But even if Brazil wasn't there, Europe certainly will be there. Uh, India will certainly be there. Uh, Asia will be there. There are still plenty of other demand points in Q1. In fact, when you go back to January of this year, we rallied almost daily on the global urea market, and that was due to European buying. And the, the exact same situation that got us into that mess last Q1 is set up almost exactly the same as this Q1 coming up. Oof. All right. So with that being said, you're recommending... That, folks, if they know what their spring needs are going to be, time to get them bought right now. Can we guarantee availability if we're writing those big checks right now for nitrogen in particular, Josh? I'm pretty confident product will be there. The fertilizer market always finds a way. A lot of the times we don't see the stuff that's going on. It's a little bit like a duck in water. When you're above the water, not seeing what's going on behind the scenes, looks like it's just floating, uh, you know, seamlessly. No problems. Doesn't create a wake. Underneath the water, the market is kicking like hell trying to get product from point A to point B where it needs to go. And when it comes down to it, the North America market is really a, a premier destination. We pay our bills. We're a safe destination. If we truly get into a situation where world supplies are extremely tight, I don't think that's the case. But if we did, I am much, much more concerned about some of these lesser countries out there, the third world countries, if you will. They're the ones that people are going to look at and say, yeah, I don't really feel like sending this really, really high-priced product there because – I may not get paid. Those are the areas that I'm really struggling with, the ones that I'm really worried about right now. And that makes the most sense. With the current supply chain disruptions in mind, Josh, most of our fertilizer, at least across the Corn Belt, is bulk. It's barged up the river. It's railed in. I can't imagine, and maybe you can correct me if I'm mistaken, but I doubt we're seeing a whole lot of issues in fertilizer due to container shipments being delayed. Are we yet? 
No, when it comes to container shipping, it doesn't really affect the fertilizer market. All of our fertilizer is handled in bulk. So it's bulk vessel freight, not container vessel freights. And we have seen vessel freights go up higher, uh, bulk vessel freights higher around the world. One that I track very, very closely is the Arab Gulf to NOLA, um, because half of our urea imports come from that region. Normally, that rate would be somewhere between $15 and $30 a metric ton, and you could write it in stone. It did not break out of that range. This year, it reached a high of 80 um, here this week, it was set at 56. So it is still a heightened number, but we can find vessels. And that's not the same that other nations out there can say. We can at least find it if we're willing to pay for it. So that's all developing on the nitrogen side. On the P&K side, as you look ahead to this next spring, are there concerns about availability? And where do you think prices are going to head here from this winter? That's a great question. And unfortunately, both of them have very solid bull cases to be made. And both of them have very bearish cases to be made. Uh, so for phosphate, the things I'm still very, very bullish about is, again, I go back to the global marketplace. China is one of the biggest exporters in the world. And they have, again, they have completely shut down exports of phosphate. And they're saying they're going to do that all the way through of June of 22. That is leaving the world very, very short on export tonnages. That creates a bit of a domino effect as everybody who usually gets their stuff from there starts scrambling other places trying to find it. So we've got that going on. We've got some countries like India and Pakistan. If you go out and Google uh, India phosphate, for example, you're going to be met with a lot of stories of farmers can't find it. Retail locations are uh, are being raided by farmers because they're angry and they can't find product. Um, Pakistan, same way. There's a lot of demand. Supplies are very, very tight. So that should tell us that, hey, we need to be very wary of this. But at the same point, a lot of farmers out there are really struggling with the 22 cash flow. And I fully can appreciate that. One of the first things that starts taking a hit is that phosphate potash application. So we have to be mindful that our demand may not be nearly as big as what we're anticipating. Yeah. And then on the potash side, the upside is uh, you've been hearing about the whole Belarus and Russia-Ukraine situation. Russia's placing a lot of troops on the border with Ukraine, threatening to invade, putting military equipment. If it turned into an all-out war and we shut down any sort of exports from Belarus or Russia, well, that would actually account for about one-third of the global operating rate of potash. And there isn't a market alive that you can all of a sudden just cut out a third of it and say, oh, prices shouldn't change. So that's something we need to be watching for as well. Very, very, very low likelihood situation. But, hey, it's 2021. Every weird, dumb thing that could drive a market higher has happened. So we can't sit there and say there's no way that happens either. That's a great point. In December of 2019, it was a very low likelihood that a pandemic was going to shut down the globe <laughs> for almost 20 months. And yet here we are. So, Josh, that's on the potash side. We've also had a lot of talk about tariffs and trade uh, disruptions in that. Do you see anything changing with the tariffs here over this next year or are we just going to live with it and muddle through? Well, on the phosphate side, that's already in place. That is already law. Um, however, we're starting to hear a lot of organizations are stepping up and saying, we're fighting this. We're taking this to court. We're we're asking our lawmakers to take another look at it. And I don't know. I, I can't really give you a good upside downside scenario on are they going to be successful? Is it going to fail? I don't know. Um, we've never seen this before. We've never seen this kind of pushback. So not only is the demand side of it pushing back, we've also got like Morocco and Russia pushing back on it. So it's a little bit of waiting to see. What does D.C. do? Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, Republicans that represent the uh, corn growing states, and that'd be a great feather in their cap to say, I'm fighting for the farmer. I'm trying to do away with this. I want free trade flow from cheap origins. On the UAN side, we're still waiting to see. We got the first round of duties on the uh, countervailing against Russia and Trinidad. Not nearly as high as we expected them to be. But then again, right now, we don't need any. And so we've got to wait and see. We still got the anti-dumping case that's coming along. So... A lot of stories still to be told on those. A lot of stories still to be told as they are told. Josh, we'll be sure to get you on AOA and we'll pick your brain to help our farmers make the best decisions they can. And folks, stick around. When we return, we'll talk weather AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. 
The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. And today we're talking about sustainability with Tom Malika, who oversees operations and enterprise sustainability at CHS. How does CHS define sustainability? Within CHS, we really look at it as what does sustainability mean? When we think of that, there's three fundamentals that make up our approach to sustainability. Environmental stewardship, community well-being, economic viability. And within those three fundamentals, we have 12 focus areas that are dive deeper into what that means for each one of our business units and each one of our operating units. And then those fundamentals and focus areas really reinforce how working to improve sustainability connects to our values of integrity, safety, inclusion, cooperative spirit, and ultimately helps us fulfill our purpose of creating connections to empower agriculture. How do those efforts then benefit cooperative farmer owners? The other areas where our owners take benefit from is to know that CHS is out there in creating a more sustainable environment, one in which we can continue to support the growers as they look to pass their farm on for generation to generation, we look to do the same thing within our company. How do we make sure that CHS is viable and sustainable, not for the last 90 years, because we've already done that, but also for the next 90, so that the growers should have great uh, confidence that CHS is going to change and adapt and become more sustainable as is necessary for the business to go forward. Tom Malika, who oversees operations and enterprise sustainability at CHS. And thanks for joining us. Around the table, learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President, American Coalition for Ethanol. Ron, let's start with the things that stand out to you on the positive side from this week's announcement. Well, I think the, the, the good things that we knew about, but that got announced at this point, were the $700 million in aid to ethanol plants for pandemic relief. We knew that was happening. We just didn't know when it would be announced. And I think we still don't know the details. So it kind of looks like something that they decided to announced so that they could soften the blow of the other stuff that came. We'll see what the what the details are, but that's good. And, and USDA has been very helpful to us. And then they also announced that there would be another $100 million in um, infrastructure grant for stations to put in equipment for higher blends. So that can be useful too. In both cases, I think, again, USDA has always been very helpful to us. And, and you know, in one respect, we knew the one thing was coming, the other one we hoped would. So that that's probably the best news of all. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson sitting in for Mike Adams. We are in December. Winter is in full effect to help talk us through what's coming with the weather. Greg Soulier joins me. He is the meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness. And Greg, when do you expect to see that hard freeze for a lot of our listeners here in the southern uh, southern Corn Belt and lower? Uh, well, uh, my friend, we have uh, basically uh, been in conjunction and contact and consultation with the big guy up north. We're talking Santa. And we have uh, prescribed a shot of Arctic air, probably a sub-zero type cold, and those have been few and far between. And uh, kind of preceding it and following in the wake of it, and in any event, uh, snow is in the forecast. Now, this is for uh, the northern plains, the southern Canadian prairie, uh, up through uh, Montana as well. So we've got Arctic air building there. This warmth, this heat, which helped to fuel that severe weather outbreak of historic and, of, and, and destructive nature, that uh, December tornadic outbreak from the lower Ohio Valley and south and eastward. Some of that warmth is still holding on. So whenever you get this squeeze play of the isobars, the lines of constant temperature and pressure that can packed over a given area, that will be the Great Plains, the central and northern Corn Belt. You're going to have moisture with that Arctic air to the north, the warmth down to the south. So it's an active weather pattern, and there is a trend towards a much colder, if not bitter cold weather pattern. That cold, again, and all this moisture expected to begin its initial phases around here as we get very close to Christmas and beyond. You know, Greg, you mentioned that severe weather that tore through uh, places over the weekend. And when we've got that extreme cold and that extreme heat, could this severe weather season this year extend into January? Is that feasible? Uh, yes, it is. You know, and I've been doing this for a few decades and, and, and getting, cutting my teeth in the business that used to be the classic textbook. And a lot of people think of it that way, you know, the afternoon heating, springtime, summertime, uh, you know, a little later in the season, you get into the northern latitude and, and that's it. And there's an, a you know, discernible end to the severe weather season. Just seems like over the past maybe 10 or 20 years, that is not the case. And I think there will be an additional propensity for more either late season or early season, however you want to slice it up, uh, severe weather, probably probably getting a little farther south into the southern plains, the delta, that part of the country. But the, 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 the spread of temperatures, the wind profiles up aloft here, and the extended, medium, and longer range are suggestive of that. And, and by the way, not only do we have that severe stuff, and we're going to see a little more, uh, you know, traditional build of uh, December, early January, and beyond weather here through the northern plains, the western states as well, this temperature profile, this contrast extends uh, cold air to the Pacific Northwest, the warmth in the New Mexico, and even the west. It's not a trademark, mind you of La Nina is in significant moisture, so enjoy it while you may. There will be some significant moisture here over the next 10, 15, 20 days over the west and southwestern portion of the country. So virtually in any direction you go out of the plains, uh, there'll be some sense of, I would think, weather headlines to be made for the good or correct reason, moisture, or a bad reason as in more severe weather over the deep south and southeast here in the coming weeks. Well, let's talk that Pacific Northwest. You know, they have been hit by a drought just the same as our friends in Montana and the Dakotas. Are they going to be getting some moisture. Yeah, exactly. With the exception of the Rogue River Basin, the Willamette Valley, those are the key ag areas uh, west of the Cascades, the western reaches of Washington State and Oregon. Those folks have had actually too much of a good thing, uh, but as those upper-level winds glide, they hit the peaks of the Cascades, they wring out their moisture there, and then back towards the Pacific, but as they come down the Cascades and the Bitterroots, uh, and into the northern Rockies, they sink, they dry, and that's why we've had all this wind and warmth and dryness. That will change not only the cold in through big sky, the Dakotas, the Canadian prairie, it's going to backbuild into uh, California with probably even lower elevation snowfall anticipated through, through the valleys of Washington State and Oregon. So you wanted moisture. You didn't really dictate how you wanted it, but uh, there's going to be a little more uniform, broad-based, and some of that frozen variety in the Pacific Northwest and, again, farther south into California. California, the central and southern Sierra, the mountains of the southwestern states, everyone should get some degree of moisture here. Again, not enough then to drought. Drought improvement, maybe, and unfortunately some of this may come down almost too fast and too quickly into parts of the, uh, for example, Sacramento Valley. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, there will be significant moisture and a significant drop in temperature anticipated here as we head through the holiday period and beyond into the Pacific Northwest. 
Well, let's look ahead to next week. Greg, it is Christmas time. A lot of folks probably this year planning on traveling. Where do you see a travel challenge developing during Christmas week? Anything to keep an eye out? Yeah, here through uh, Montana, the Dakotas, the Southern Canadian Prairie, maybe through the Red River Valley of the north, and then ultimately a move into the Great Lakes and the parts of the uh, uh, eastern Corn Belt locales should be relatively okay in quotes, central and southern plains anticipating a pretty good drop in temperature uh, into the Great Lakes region, some lake effect moisture there, a wetter pattern with the warmth, mind you, across the Delta, southeastern part of the country. So you've got rainy travel, but warm there. You've got a more traditional, typical uh, winter weather pattern, complete with, again, cold wave conditions, Canadian border on northward, and there will be a several rounds of accumulating snow in I-90, 94 corridor across the Dakotas, Montana, the upper Missouri Valley, and, of course, in through uh, much of California and uh, the Pacific uh, West and Southwest. Great skiing if you're, uh, and we haven't really ever talked about that the past few years, if you are inclined to take a break on the usual farmstead chores and head into the mountains of the Southwest and across the Rockies, there may be some of the better snowfall uh, systems here that we've seen in probably a couple of years in that part of the country. But from a travel standpoint, it would behoove the wise listener to these radio stations to kind of stay up to date on the later forecasts around here. Probably will be uh, an active one with, again, a wide range of temperatures from north-northwest to south-south across the United States. Wide range of temperatures. Greg, at the very top of that map, North Dakota, Montana, are we going to see any sub-zero temperatures as we round out 2021? Uh, we certainly will take uh, some you know, measure of getting some snow on the ground. It's, uh, the air by itself appears to be cold enough for sub-zero cold. Now you get that snow cover on it, and it just reflects whatever sun we come up with this in this uh, uh, low sun angle uh, time of the year. So, yeah, the likelihood of probably some readings staying below zero by day, and it's uh, conceivable on the right circumstances and locales, some of this 10, 15, 20, 25 degree, degree below zero type actual cold is anticipated. So, you know, from one extreme to another wind and heat dryness to all of a sudden back into winter storm and cold wave conditions that's the way it plays out here across the northern plains upper midwest canadian prairie for the uh, foreseeable future tune in every weekend to this week in agribusiness and you'll hear greg's thoughts on the weather for the week ahead folks thanks for tuning in to aoa tomorrow mike adams returns and he will have a conversation with secretary of agriculture tom vilsack so be sure to come back tomorrow on aoa Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite.